behind Hebrews 11 in your Bible. Let's stand. Let's honor the word. Uh, Let's read it together. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand that life of faith, that we would be people of faith, that we would uh, follow these examples from the Old Testament, and particularly today, the example of Abraham. Lord, we pray that uh, we would, in our own sphere of life, that we would demonstrate uh, that we trust you explicitly, and that uh, we believe that you not only exist, but that you reward those who diligently seek after you. And so, Lord, may we live that way. And Lord, may people see the difference in our lives as a result that we can bear testimony of the saving grace of Christ. And Lord, we know it's nothing of our own. It's no inherent righteousness that we have, but it is totally your righteousness that has been given to us by faith. And so, Lord, we pray this morning your word would be clear that you would help us to not only grasp it and understand it fully, but that we would know how we need to apply it in our daily living. Lord, we pray as we worship, Lord, that uh, everything that is said and done in this place would be pleasing to you. And we ask that you would bless our worship time today in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been uh, going through the Hall of Faith, and if there is one message in this chapter, 
it is that the just in the Old Testament, the true remnant of God, were those who lived a life of faith. And when you boil it all down to it, there are really only two ways to live. The vast majority of the people live by sight. They base everything on what they can see and observe. You might call this empirical living. But the other way to live, which is far less common, is to live by faith. To live your life on the basis of the unseen. It's a life that is founded upon believing what you cannot fully verify. The Christian life is that kind of life. You and I have never seen God, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit. We have never seen heaven or hell or angels or demons. In fact, we have never seen with our physical eyes any of the people who wrote the Bible. We have never seen the original autographs of Scripture. And yet, we base our eternity on these things. We live with the conviction that all these things are real and that they are trustworthy. We bank our lives on it, but more importantly, we bank our eternal destiny on it. The life we live is, in fact, a faith life. And that's how the people of God have always lived. But what we have seen so far in our study of Hebrews 11 is that those who actually live this faith life are few and far between. The vast majority of people do not actually live a life of faith. And I believe that even today our churches are filled with those who are merely paying lip service to the life of faith. Each of us who profess to know Christ should examine our hearts to see if we are truly living by faith. And as we have seen, genuine biblical faith has certain ingredients that are indispensable. So far, we have seen that genuine faith has a certain understanding of worship and how to approach God. It involves a life of walking with God, and it involves a life of obedience to God. Beginning today, we're going to see that it is something that must pass the tests of God. And from verse 8 down to verse 19, we have this large section on the life of Abraham. There is absolutely no doubt that Abraham is the epitome of faith in the Scripture. There are more references in the New Testament that connect faith to Abraham than to anyone else. He is no doubt the greatest example of faith in Scripture. But his faith was severely tested. And in this long passage of Scripture, we see three ways in which God tested Abraham's faith. Now, we're not going to get through all three of these this morning. 
but we will begin to look at this incredible example of genuine faith. And when you analyze it, I think we would have to say that Abraham demonstrated what you might call the totality of a life of faith. Abraham was, of course, the father of the Jewish people. This is why he is presented here in the book of Hebrews as the most strategic example of faith. The Jews of that day tended, though, to believe that just because they were physical descendants of Abraham, that they were in God's grace and salvation. What they needed to learn was that they also needed to emulate Abraham's faith. This is why Abraham is presented so clearly here and elsewhere in the New Testament as the father of the faithful, as the ultimate example of one who truly believed God and was counted as righteous as a result. Another critical point of clarification is the difference between faith and works righteousness. The Jewish rabbis had long taught that Abraham was saved by his works. They believed that God had looked around the earth to try to find a truly outstanding man, and lo and behold, he found Abraham, who was a man who was truly righteous. And they believed that it was because of his inherent righteousness that God chose Abraham to be the father of the Jewish nation. But the author of Hebrews knew that this was a notion that needed to be corrected. He knew that the people needed to understand that Abraham was not righteous in and of himself, but that he was declared righteous by God because of his faith. This is something the Apostle Paul also emphasized, along with other New Testament writers. We even saw this in the book of Acts. When Stephen was addressing the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he began by showing that Abraham demonstrated that he was a man of faith by obeying God and leaving his homeland. In fact, turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, and look at verse 2. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child... He promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. These are the very same things that we see in the book of Hebrews. In Paul's powerful 
argument for justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 4, he uses Abraham as the central illustration of that theological principle. We see the very same thing in the book of James. So there is no doubt that Abraham is the greatest example of faith in the New Testament. He is the classic example of what it means to become justified by faith and then to live a life of faith. In fact, Paul declared in the book of Galatians that those who are genuine believers in Christ are, in fact, the children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What this is saying is that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are a true son of Abraham through faith in Christ. It's not the physical lineage of Abraham that counts. It is the spiritual lineage by faith. So Abraham is the prototype, the pattern for all men of faith. All who are saved must be saved the very same way Abraham was saved, which is by faith. Now, this passage of Scripture back in Hebrews 11 is not easy to outline. And as I said, we won't be able to get through all of it today. But I'm going to divide this according to the three major tests of Abraham's life. And we begin with the test of worldliness, the test of worldliness. Now, in order to see this first test, we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. And then we're going to drop down to verses 13 to 16. And these two sections really are connected with each other in regard to thought. And if we can get through even just this first test this morning... I think we'll be doing well. Look with me at verse 8 again. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, it might not seem obvious to us at first, But Abraham's first test is the test of worldliness because he was likely a wealthy citizen of Ur of the Chaldeas, which is modern-day Iraq, and probably had a large house and much property. He lived among a people who were pagans, who worshipped the moon, and yet when the true God of the Bible called him out from that, he immediately obeyed. Now, we don't know really how Abraham got to know the true God of the Bible, but we know that he was committed to him in the midst of a pagan nation. The sovereign God called him out, and he went willingly. The key verb in verse 8 is obeyed. All other action in this verse is subordinated to this main verb. In other words, his faith was manifested in his obedience. He did not 
know what lay ahead for him, but he followed God. As Bruce writes, faith and obedience are inseparable in, in one's relation to God. He would not have obeyed the divine call had he not taken God at his word. His obedience was the outward evidence of his inward faith. Now, we're given the original account in Genesis chapter 12. So turn with me to Genesis 12 for a moment. Look with me at verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Of course, he's known as Abram at this point, but what did he have to leave behind to obey the true God? He had to leave his country, his relatives, his father's house, in other words, his inheritance. Or another way you could put it is he had to leave everything that was stable and everything that was known in his life. And what was he going to get out of the deal? He was going to get to follow God to a land that he knew nothing about. In fact, according to Hebrews 11, he was going to have to go out not even knowing where he was going. God did not give him a map of where he was going to take him And he did not have GPS on his camel. But notice verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now what is that? Well that is the first mention of the Abrahamic covenant. God was entering into a covenant with Abraham and was leading him out to the land where he would fulfill it. Verse 4, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Remember Lot? He was his nephew, and he ended up in Sodom, which God later destroyed. But look at the last half of that verse. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. You say, wait a minute, I thought he was in Ur. Well, that's where he started. But by this time, his father, Terah, had moved the family to Haran. However, his ultimate goal was Canaan, the land of promise. Notice verse 5, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Going back to Hebrews eleven eight, that's where God was taking him, but he didn't know it when he first set out. He made this trek by faith. By the way, let me just throw something else in here so you won't go out and do something foolish, okay? 
we need to understand that these unique experiences of these Old Testament characters are not necessarily normative for Christians today. God wants you to emulate Abraham's faith, but not necessarily in the same way in which he exercised it. In other words, God does not expect you right now to go and sell all your stuff and take off to some unknown location. He did this with Abraham, but we need to remember that it was because Abraham had a unique role in God's redemptive history. We don't necessarily have that same kind of role today in his plan. But in Abraham's case, this was a real test of his faith because it required him to leave everything that he knew behind in order to obey God. Could God put your faith to that same kind of test? Of course he could. And he very well may ask you to lay aside everything that is precious to you in order to follow his will. But go back to Hebrews 11.8. Notice that Abraham was called by God. This is a present participle, so it should read, when he was being called. You know, what does this imply? It implies that the moment he understood what God was saying to him, he immediately started packing his bags. This was instant obedience. MacArthur says it may have taken several days or even weeks or months to make final preparation for the trip, but in his mind, he was already on his way. And from that moment on, everything he did revolved around obeying God's call. Now, I think this can apply rightfully to a call to ministry today. When God calls someone into full-time Christian service, it might be years before it comes to fruition. But from the moment he calls you, you should begin moving in his direction. In fact, the Christian life should be understood in this very same way as a pilgrimage. From the old pattern of life to a brand new one. Scripture says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a brand new creature, and the old things have passed away, and everything has become new. Abraham is a picture of this in this regard. We are to leave the old and move on to the new. Salvation always brings separation from the old life. It always brings separation from worldliness. God cannot lead us into new ways of living without first leading us out of the old ways. And all the language in this passage is that of a pilgrim, a sojourner, one who is really a citizen of a different realm. And the heart 
of a pilgrim is that of being willing to leave the old behind and to move on to the new. Now, we saw this same attitude in our study of Romans. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're, we're not to be conformed to the world. We're not to become just like the world. Instead, we're to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. You know, we've talked about the danger of worldliness. But this is a temptation that is very real in our day and time. It, it's a temptation that has prevented some from even coming to Christ to begin with. But it has prevented others, many Christians, from being all that God wants them to be. John Wesley once said, Anything that cools my love for Jesus is worldliness. Worldliness is more of an attitude than an act. It is inwardly desiring to live just like the rest of the world. And yet the Word of God declares do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's 1 John 2.15. That's not, the love of the world is not to characterize us as believers. You see, Christian maturity leads to a change in our want-tos. And the more we grow in Christ, the less like the world we will be. And the more mature we become in Christ, the more we will want what God wants instead of what the world is pursuing. We'll go on to verses 9 and 10. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob fellow heirs of the same promise. Stop right there for just a moment. Here, the other patriarchs are included as well. But the point is, they lived by faith as aliens, as pilgrims in the land of promise. They did not have permanent dwelling places, but lived in tents. Even though the land of Canaan was promised to them, they did not own any of it at this particular time. And this is a powerful reminder to us that faith often requires waiting. The promises of God do not always come about immediately. And the phrase, dwelling in tents, was the way of travelers and nomads in those days. Even in that day and time, tents were not seen as permanent dwelling places. Not only Abraham, but his son and his grandson all lived in tents. They never owned any of the promised land except by faith. In other words, the land was in sight, but it was not in hand. They walked on it, but they did not own it. 
The only land Abraham ever owned was a small burial plot. As near as the land was to them, it remained only a promise and not a reality. They did not build any houses or cities on it. Look at it again. He lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents. Now, this points to another test of Abraham's faith, which is the test of patience. The fact that God had promised to give him this land had to have made it much more difficult for him to be patient. And listen, folks, that is a test of our faith as well. MacArthur says, often the hardest times for us as believers are the in-between times, the times of waiting. It is a challenge for us to wait on God at times. We usually want things to happen immediately, but that is not always God's plan. And the truth of the matter is, Abraham spent a lot of time waiting on God. He had to wait for many years before God gave him the son of promise. He had to wait all his life for God to fulfill the promise to give him the land of Canaan. And he, in fact, died without receiving that promise. This is the life of faith. This is the life of faith. We don't always receive his promises right away. And sometimes... We don't even receive them in this life. You know, as Christians in America today, this is a real struggle for us. We are so used to instant gratification. We are so used to things happening quickly and easily. But that is not always God's plan for us. Sometimes we have to learn to wait on the Lord. You know, I think of missionaries that have had to wait for years for any kind of tangible fruit. William Carey spent 35 years in India and saw only a handful of converts. And yet, every missionary who has gone to India since that time has been the beneficiary of the groundwork that Carey laid. Because he translated the Bible into Indian dialects and he planted seeds that are still being harvested today. And just like William Carey, we need to make sure that we do not grow weary in well-doing. As we see in James chapter 5 verses 7 through 8, we're instructed to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You, too, be patient, he says. We've got to learn to be patient and wait on God. Of course, it is discouraging to pray and trust and work and yet see no results. A mother may pray for the salvation of her son for years, 
without seeing him come to know Christ. A pastor may preach for years without seeing tangible fruit of his labor. But this is the life of faith. Genuine faith is deaf to doubt, dumb to discouragement, and blind to impossibility. Faith hangs on to the promise no matter how long it takes to see the fulfillment of it. You say, well, what was the, what was the secret to Abraham's patience? It was his hope in the eternal promise of God. Look at verse 10 again. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Notice it doesn't say he was looking for a city. It says he was looking for the city. John Phillips wrote, Abraham learned that a city won't do when you have caught a glimpse of the city. There is no doubt that this refers to the eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the city whose architect and builder is God himself. Abraham set his heart on it thousands of years before there was even an earthly Jerusalem, much less a new Jerusalem as described by the Apostle John. This ultimate city is the one with foundations. You know, a tent has no foundations. A tent just has pegs driven into the ground. And so this points to the ultimate stability and permanence of that heavenly city. Of course, this is a picture that we see very often in the New Testament. Paul declared in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here in this world. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, how did Abraham come to this hope of an eternal city? Well, we're not told this, but God must have revealed it to him. As Jay Adams writes, faith is not some hope against hope vagary. It is not vaporized reality. It is specific and concrete. He says, God presumably gave to Abraham information about the heavenly city and country to which he would travel after having found the promised land. He says we don't read that in Genesis, but by the Spirit moving him to pen these words, the writer of Hebrews, let us look inside the mind of Abraham to see what was going on. What, what had Abraham set his heart on, his mind upon? It wasn't the earthly promised land. It was the eternal 
promised land. And according to this divinely inspired revelation, Abraham was looking beyond the earthly promised land to the ultimate promised land. This is why he could die still clinging to that promise. He knew his ultimate destiny, even if he never saw the promise of an earthly land fulfilled. And because he believed the ultimate promise was certain, he could be patient with God in the fulfillment of the short-term promises. And remember our definition of faith in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Because the eternal question was settled in Abraham's heart, the earthly questions could remain unanswered. He didn't have to understand everything that God was doing in this earthly life because he was absolutely convinced that all God's promises would be ultimately fulfilled. Or you could put it like J. Adams does. Because Abraham knew where he was headed eternally, he didn't need to know where he was going tomorrow or the next day. Wherever the earthly route took him, it didn't matter because he knew that God was mapping out a road to the eternal city. Abraham's ultimate promised land was heaven just like ours is. This means we don't have to know everything in this life, and we don't have to know in advance that everything's going to turn out okay. We don't have to know all that. You know, I've written about the subject of God's will, and one of the themes that we always see in this regard is the desire of people to know the future. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen ahead of time. People want to know God's providence in advance, but you cannot know God's providence in advance. We can only know what God is doing in our lives by looking back and seeing it. God's providence, his mysterious hand on our lives, is a mystery until it happens. Once it happens, then you can see his work, his hand at work in your life. But you can't know the providence of God ahead of time. And of course, one of the main reasons why we want to know God's providence ahead of time is so we can be assured that everything is going to turn out all right. We want to know before we buy that car if it's going to be dependable or if it's going to be a lemon, right? We want to know ahead of time. We want to know ahead of time that things are going to be good for us. But listen, that's not the life of faith. Faith says, I don't have to know ahead of time what God is going to do because I trust him explicitly. I know that whatever he does, it will turn out for my good and his glory. I trust him. That is the life of faith. 
And the life of faith trusts God to the degree that if none of his promises are fulfilled in this lifetime, that is okay because he will ultimately fulfill every promise in eternity. That was Abraham's eternal perspective. Even if he had possessed the earthly promised land in his lifetime, he knew that was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. That was not his ultimate inheritance. He was patient because his eyes were on the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Listen, as important as the earthly land was to him, the eternal city was much more important. And he believed that God's promise of that ultimate city would not fail. He looked beyond the earthly, and he set his heart on the eternal. You know, I'm sure you've heard the old saying that it is possible to be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. And I guess that's true in some cases. But most of the time, the reverse of that is true. It is much more common to be so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good. Even Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, looked beyond the earthly to embrace the eternal. And that is what carried him through his lifetime as a man of faith, fully trusting God and passing all the tests of his faith. Listen, when we trust God for the ultimate, we can handle the temporal. I mean, we can go through the tough times and pain and suffering in this life, knowing that we have an ultimate home in heaven forever. MacArthur says it is impossible to be of any real earthly good unless we are heavenly minded. Only the heavenly minded will have the patience to continue faithful in God's work when it becomes hard, unappreciated, and seemingly unending. He says there is no greater cure for discouragement, fatigue, or self-pity than to think of being in the presence of the Lord and spending eternity with him. Listen, we should never apologize for being heavenly minded. In fact, the New Testament instructs us to think this way. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. It is only when we do that that we will be able to be patient with the setbacks and the struggles of this life. It is only when we set our minds on things above that we will be able to endure with genuine faith the trials and the adversities of this life. Well, we're going to have to stop here for today. I didn't even get as far as I wanted to get this morning. 
but we'll come back here next time. We're not even through the first point in our outline. But how do we need to respond this morning? Are you trusting God no matter what happens in this life? Are you trusting him for the things of eternity even when things don't go quite the way you hoped they would in this life? Are you passing the test of worldliness? Are you willing to let go of that which the world says is valuable to have that which God says is truly valuable? Are you truly truly letting go of the old life to fully embrace the new? Are you passing the test of patience? Are you trusting God in the midst of having to wait for him? Are you trusting him even when you don't see your dreams come to pass? Are you emulating the faith of Abraham? That's the question this morning. And my hope and prayer this morning is if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you'll do that this morning. That's the starting place. But as believers, are we really people of faith? Are we really walking in faith? Are we living this kind of faith life? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you'd help us to apply this to our lives. Lord, we pray that uh, there are those here this morning that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would lay aside all excuse, all hindrance, and come and put their total faith in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, we pray that uh, as believers, as those who are followers of Christ, that we would be all you want us to be, that, that we would in in fact, be people of faith, that we would be living every day, not not chasing this world and the things of this world, but following you and pursuing the things that are eternal. Lord, help us to do that. And we ask that you would help us as we respond right now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.